Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that this hour is going to be all about climate change. And then we're going to have a little bit towards the end of the hour, some meditation and prayer time. I think this is going to be a really great hour. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. He's the founder of the Cornwall Alliance, and he has organized a whole group of scientific minds from all different um, uh, disciplines to look at things like climate and the implications it has on the world today. And he is my go-to person when it comes to uh, anything from the climate change discussion and debate. And he's here with me. Uh, Cal, welcome. Thanks very much, Bill. Great to be back with you. Thank you so much. And I want my listeners to know you can ask Cal questions. Just uh, You can call and get on the program, or you can text me either way, 877-933-2484. So are we looking at 2020, Cal, as the warmest year? And if And if we are... Is that a big deal? Uh, maybe. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe maybe it will be, uh, and so what if it is? Uh, start with the simple fact that if it's the warmest year, uh, that will actually be the warmest year on record. And record, as far as the way we are measuring warmest year, really goes back only, oh, about uh, 40 years. And in a world that's, you know, if you're a young earth geologist, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, six or 7,000 years old, and if you're an old earth geologist, somewhere around, oh, six billion years old, 40 years isn't very long. Uh, but besides that, the way we uh, talk about warmest year on record is by hundreds of a degree uh, Fahrenheit. And so uh, if, if 2020 winds up so supposedly warmest, it'll be by a margin that's so small that absolutely nobody would feel it. We only can detect it by using extremely sensitive machines. And even those don't give you total certainty. Well, when you hear a, a, a piece of news like that, there is usually some mild hysteria that goes along with it. So I love the fact you can bring some sanity to, to the discussion. Yeah, but, you know, Bill, the mild hysteria really requires that you don't talk at the way, about it the way you just did. You talked about 2020 perhaps being the warmest year. No, 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 no. You have to get with the program. It is the hottest year, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Hottest. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, the sweat's rolling down my face. It's so hot. Mm -hmm. no, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we've, we've had altogether perhaps 1.2 degrees Celsius increase in global average temperature since about 1850. Um, and actually, the result has been a whole lot better growth of plants all over the world. And that makes a whole lot more food available for everybody, uh, including animals. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, Cal, this got my attention because uh, the question was, is global warming harming the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes and Minnesota, where I happen to live? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, just recently, I, I had a uh, uh, an email from somebody, uh, a friend, 
who said, hey, I'm seeing news that the Great Lakes uh, water temperature has risen significantly and uh, that that's a problem and that it's causing uh, difficulties in terms of perhaps some stress on biodiversity in the Great Lakes. So I went to my friend, Dr. Roy uh, Spencer. He is a principal research scientist in climatology at the University of Alabama. He's also a board member and a senior fellow for the Cornwall Alliance. And uh, I said, Roy, what can you tell me? What's the, uh, what's the hard data? And the hard data show no significant change in uh, uh, Great Lakes water temperatures and, <laughs> excuse me, and uh, no, uh, no significant warming for Minnesota, which was the particular area that this friend was concerned about. Uh, and so, you know, we need to go to hard data instead of just sort of wild claims that make the media. Mm-hmm. I appreciate and his his data, by the way, come from the the most accurate source that we have, and that is the uh, NASA satellites that are in pole to pole geosynchronous orbit and give us twenty four seven three sixty five all altitudes, all latitudes, all longitudes uh, data on the uh, temperature of the atmosphere at any given point. So that's the best we've got, and. That's what Roy manages for NASA under contract with the University of Alabama. Cal, would you uh, let my listeners know about this uh, climate apocalyptic video about this <laughs> town in, um, is it the Marshall Islands? Yes. Would you explain the Marshall that? Islands. Yeah. Well, there's a brand new video out, came out on August 4, called uh, The Final Years of Mahuro. Mahuro is the capital city of the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands, of course, are a territory of the United States. Uh, they are the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And uh, they're also the location, by the way, of where we did our above ground nuclear testing for a while in the 1950s and into the early 1960s. Uh, so when you've seen film of these explosions of nuclear weapons uh, out over the ocean, uh, they're coming from Enuitoc, uh in the Marshall Islands. Well, the Marshall Islands uh, are a low, uh, what's called a coral atoll. That's a group of islands formed by coral reefs. And according to this new film, The Final Years of Mahuro, uh, the whole of the Marshall Islands, and not just the city of Mahuro, will be submerged if the global average temperature rises to more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperature. Well, that would basically be about another three-tenths of a degree above what it is right now, which sounds pretty doggone frightening. And in fact, it was used by the uh, 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 representative of the Marshall Islands to the Paris Climate Summit back in 2015 to get the, uh, the uh, negotiators to uh, commit to the idea that we need to prevent global average temperature from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. Um, so the claim is that because of the warming atmosphere, the oceans also will warm up, and that causes uh, two things. One is the uh, the melting, the, the atmospheric warming causes melting of land ice, glaciers, uh, particularly uh, uh, Green, Greenland and Antarctica. 
and the ocean's warming causes uh, thermal expansion of the water in the oceans. Add that to the water that comes from the melting glaciers, and you get sea level rise. And so the idea is that uh, we're seeing accelerating sea level rise that threatens to submerge not just the uh, Marshall Islands, but many other uh, coral atolls around the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So that's kind of the claim. And I looked into it a little bit. It's, it's really quite interesting. The big problem with that claim is that sea level rise isn't the only thing that happens in the world. Say more. <laughs> okay. Well, along with sea level rise, not only do some people eat bags of Cheetos, <laughs> but also <laughs> there are lots of other things going on in the world. I, I knew I could get a laugh. Out okay. Of <laughs> there are lots of other things going on in the world, but two of them are particularly relevant to this whole question of whether low-lying uh, islands are threatened with, uh, with submergence by sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And the first one is that uh, coral grows. Coral is a, a living stuff, and it grows. And in fact, it has to stay in sunlight in order to grow. It has to be shallow enough in the water for sun to reach it. Well, what that means is that coral responds to rising sea level by growing upward. <laughs> and if you're talking about islands that are made of coral, that means that coral keeps compensating for sea level rise. Ah. Now, of course, it's a legitimate question. Is the coral rising fast enough to accommodate the sea level rise that's going on? Get to that in a moment. But the other thing that's also going on is that on all islands, and for that matter, all seacoasts, uh, two things uh, happen to uh, to add or subtract, add to or subtract from the land uh, elevation and the land extent. Those are erosion and accretion. Uh, that is, you, you get sometimes erosion from the beaches. That happens especially with very large, powerful storms, hurricanes, cyclones, typhoons, depending on what part of the world you're ta talking about. They use different terminology, but same kind of thing. Uh, and the the other is uh, uh, addition to the beaches by wave action, pulling up sand and other materials from the sea floor, which around coral islands is quite shallow, since after all, the coral has to be able to grow from the sea floor up to uh, where it gets sunlight. So the question there is, well, which one is faster? Uh, is it addition? Is it accretion by wave action? Or is it uh, erosion by the big storms? Well, it turns out that we have a way to answer these questions, and that is by uh, careful satellite uh, imaging of the actual extent and the elevation of these islands. And there have been a number of studies published in refereed journals over the last oh, decade and a half that have shown that, surprise, surprise, the accretion uh, and the coral upgrowth together are outrunning the sea level rise hmm. so that in well over 80% of all the coral atolls in the world, the, the uh, total amount of land above sea level is growing, not shrinking. So 
In short, uh, there's no reason to think that the Marshall Islands will soon disappear, uh, which should be good news to Marshall Islanders, except that what it means is that they're not likely to be able to uh, to get quite as much redistributed income in the form of grants from the federal government. That would be the downside for sure. <clears throat> you bet. All right, Cal, let me take a little break. If you have a question for Dr. Cal Beisner, you can certainly call us and come on the program and ask the question yourself, or you can send a text and I will ask on your behalf. The number to call is 877-933-2484-877-933-2484. Otherwise, we'll be right back. to Afternoons with Bill Arnold, that we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com survey. Welcome back. I'm speaking to Dr. Cal Beisner, founder of the Cornwall Alliance. You can always head over to cornwallalliance.org. The articles over there are brilliant. So, uh, Cal, let me ask you, if we're pushing the planet... Hey, can I ask you a question first? Nah, usually I do the asking, but I'll make an exception here. Were those your ten fingers on that keyboard? That I was wish. Great. No, that wasn't me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So... Um, if we're pushing the the planet towards like renewable energy sources, wind and solar, would that does that have the potential to cause more harm to the environment than good? Oh, absolutely. I, see, I find uh, that for, fascinating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a variety of different reasons. I mean, people will talk about wind and solar as well. This is free energy. This is natural energy. Well, I mean. Uh, Oil and gas and and coal are free uh, as well. I mean, they're down there in the earth and nobody owns them until somebody lays claim to them. The cost is getting them out of the earth. Uh, the cost is transforming them into usable energy. Well, the same thing is the, is the case with, with sunlight and wind. Yeah, they're blowing around freely, but you have to harness that somehow and it costs money to do that uh, because you have to have the right kind of technology. And because the what's called the energy density of coal, oil, and natural gas, not to mention uh, uh, uranium, is much, much higher uh, for, for coal, about 900 times higher for, uh, for, for uh, uh, natural gas, about, uh, about 1,100 times higher for oil, about 1,200 times higher than the energy density of, uh, of wind and roughly the same difference uh, compared with solar. Because of that, you have to have a whole lot more intricate and and uh, uh, highly technical technology to transform that energy from very low density to very high density, which is what we need for electricity and for effective transport fuels. Uh, so uh, a part of the problem is that 
you would have to uh, increase the cost of energy. And that, in turn, decreases the rate of economic development. But one thing that we know from environmental history is that environments get cleaned up as societies get richer. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, actually, it's, it's something that ought to be pretty obvious, pretty intuitive for all of us. Uh, you know, if you are worried about putting food on the table, clothes on the back, and a roof over the head, you really don't care much about smog. You don't care much about chemical runoff into the rivers and streams, things of, of that sort, right? But if if your food, your clothing, your shelter, how about some medical care, some education, some safe transportation, uh, some good communications? If all of those things are have become routine, just totally expected in your life, then you say, "Ooh, I don't like that smog. Ooh, I don't like that chemical runoff in the in the streams. I don't like the fact that the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland uh, catches fire." And suddenly, not only do you care, but you're able to afford the technologies necessary to reduce emissions of pollutants. So environmental economists speak of what they call the environmental transition, that at various different points along economic development, uh, societies get rid of certain kinds of pollution. And this is why, frankly, ever since the 1950s, more than 60 years ago, uh, the the uh, uh, ambient emissions of all of the uh, most important air and water pollutants in America have been downward. And uh, they began doing that even before we had strict environmental regulations. It's because wealthier people uh, not only care about a clean environment, but also can afford to have it. I mean, after all, if, if you want to find out what's the dirtiest part of the city, do you go to the wealthiest part or to the, to the poorest part? And it's not because poor people don't care about filth. It's because they can't afford to get mm. rid of it. So as we move to so-called renewables, wind and solar, uh, we slow economic development. And that means you slow the rate at which you get rid of the, the worst kinds of pollutions, the kinds that actually, uh, actually kill people. Uh, like the smoke that comes from burning wood and dried dung that is the principal heating and cooking fuel for uh, billions of people in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia and Latin America. Um, we need to get rid of those, and, and moving to coal, oil, and natural gas makes sense <clears throat> for those people. Uh, Cal, what little I know about solar farms is, and I'll tell you everything I know, is... Farms? No, yeah, like solar farms where they have all these... Farms? Did I say farms? Solar... Yeah, you said farms. Did I mean farms? Factories. Factories, yeah. yeah factories. They're, they're factories. They're, you, know, I, you know, I see farms. They have plants growing all over oh, the yeah, place. Oh, yeah, yeah. So full, solar factories. Like that. Solar factories, yeah. 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 They, but, they're, of course, they're called solar farms in order to make them sound neat. Oh, okay. Cool. So, right? so language matters. I took some hook, didn't I? Shame on me. All right. But I mean, <laughs> don't don't these require like like a gajillion gallons of water to keep them clean and to generate the power? Yes, and they require a great deal of other resources, uh, huge amounts of of toxic chemicals and toxic metals that have to be mined. Uh, but besides that, they require a huge amount of land to generate the same amount of electricity 
as a given coal or gas-fired uh, electricity uh, generating station, you will need typically roughly 1,200 times as much land for solar. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of land. And uh, under that land, under those solar panels covering that much land, not much of anything grows. You, re you reduce the amount of, of uh, actual agricultural growth that can be done, as well as the amount of wild growth that can happen. Uh, you, you reduce the wildlife habitat, and so you actually are doing far more to spur uh, the, the uh, loss of wildlife and to push some species toward extinction. Not to mention when you start talking about land and you think of the wind turbines, those things take up tons of land. And aren't they just, aren't they just uh, really bad for, for bigger birds like eagles and condors and things? Oh, yeah. Um, and wind turbines, of course, don't sit low to the ground, which means that they don't have quite as much impact on plant growth beneath, beneath them as do solar uh, factories, right? Mm -hmm. The wind factories don't. You know, they're not wind farms either. Farms are pretty neat things. Uh, but besides that, the wind turbines also require vast amounts of of uh, uh, toxic chemicals and toxic metals uh, in their construction and their operation, and huge amounts of concrete. In fact, it takes, I've forgotten the exact number, so I won't cite one, but it's many times more concrete and, and steel and copper wiring and all sorts of other things like that, many times more to build a wind factory that will generate as much electricity as a coal or natural gas or nuclear power plant. And so actually you're using far more resources that way. And yes, they, well, you know, some people call them Cuisinarts of the air mm. because they just chop up. Ooh, that's not good. And interestingly enough, um, uh, the, the, the uh, federal government exempts wind factories from the laws against killing uh, golden eagles, bald eagles, uh, other protected species. Uh, you and I could go to jail for destroying an egg of a bald eagle. Uh, these wind factories kill hundreds of eagles every year. Mm -hmm. and they have no penalty attached. Mm -hmm. But it's not only birds, by the way, um, and not only the big raptors like eagles and so on. Uh, other birds, and especially bats, are killed in huge numbers. And in some places, we're, we're facing the possibility of the extinction of certain mm -hmm. local populations of bats because of that. And they kill insects. Huh. Um, in fact, I just recently, and this was something that I hadn't even known until just last week. I read a, a major article, a, a study on insect populations in Europe near wind factories. Yeah, Calvin, I have to, are down have, you're going to have to pause that thought if you don't mind. I'm just up against a hard break, which I hate doing this to you. But can no you problem. stay a little bit longer? Sure. Terrific. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. If you have a question for Dr. Beisner, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. I'm back with Dr. Cal Beisner founder of the Cornwall Alliance. You go to cornwallalliance.org 
So, Cal, i got some questions coming in. Um, here's one. Okay. I heard on the news that for the first time ever, the temperature at the Arctic Circle reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Could you just speak to that? Yeah, that was in a uh, uh, remote Russian Siberian village. At the moment, I can't pull the name back into my mind. I, I actually wrote about it about a month ago when that came out. And I contacted uh, my friend, Dr. Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama, who, uh, who runs NASA's satellite global temperature monitoring system. And I said, Roy, what's the deal on this? And he said, well, uh, first of all, uh, we don't know that that's actually the first time ever because the records don't go back very, very far. And uh, in remote locations like that, we, we just simply cannot have much confidence at all in, in, in uh, claims of such records. But second, uh, what we also know is that for the general region around there, uh, which is a, a uh, western Siberia, pardon me, an eastern Siberian region of North Siberian Asia, for that general region over the same period, the uh, average temperature was actually lower than normal, which or lower than than had been consistent uh, at the at the same time of year for many years recently. And what that entails then, what that implies, is that the temperature in that village was probably not affected by regional temperature, let alone by global temperature, but rather by what scientists call urban heat island effect. Uh, people think of urban here in America, and right away they 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 view skyscrapers and very very dense places like you know Manhattan or downtown Chicago and so on. That's not what urban means for demographers. Urban actually is any place that has built up uh, with more than say twenty or thirty dwellings, and interestingly enough, all such locations absorb and hold heat from the sun longer than the natural unbuilt up areas around them. And even in small villages, you can get an urban heat island effect that can be measured in uh, full one, two, even three degrees Celsius. And so it's quite likely that the warmth of that, uh, that, that uh, Siberian village came from urban heat island effect not from anything having to do with global temperature. That is so interesting. Thanks for telling us that. Okay, a couple of comments from a listener said, finally, someone said it, wind generators kill birds. Thank you. Oh, yeah. And then I've got another yeah. listener who's very much on the practical side. God love her. She's so uh, wanting to protect these birds. She said, could uh, windmills maybe use wire screening around the arms so that birds can't be hit by the arms? Uh, well, I've actually thought about that myself some. I thought about it even in, in uh, reading last week about the way that uh, wind turbines kill uh, billions and billions of insects. Uh, and and you have to picture this. I mean, on industrial-sized wind turbines now, the call it the the uh, blade span mm -hmm. exceeds that of the wingspan of a 747 jet. Wow! All right, so you would need to build this this uh, mesh cage uh, 
and suspend it all the way around the turbines and keep it there. Uh, and it would have to be dense enough that birds couldn't fly through it. But it would also have to be light enough that it didn't pull the whole thing down. Uh, I, I think it would be uh, very, very difficult to do that. And then besides that, the very presence of that mesh around the blades would diminish the speed of the wind coming through to the blades, which would diminish their ability to generate electricity. And already they generate so little electricity uh, compared with the cost of, of erecting them and maintaining them uh, that uh, they, they can't compete well uh, on a on a level playing field without, uh, without very specialized subsidies from government, they can't compete well with coal, oil, natural gas, or nuclear. So I'm afraid the idea wouldn't fly, mm -hmm. though birds would. Yeah, right, right. So, Cal, I sure appreciate you taking a little extra time with us today. Uh, is there anything going on at the uh, CornwallAlliance.org I can alert my listeners to? I know you usually, well, yeah. usually got uh, some promotion of some kind. Yes, uh, we do. And since we're on Skype here, I'll hold up a copy for your listeners to not see. All right. Of, <laughs> that, that's helpful uh, on radio. Yeah, a book, a book by Don Deers. He is an energy engineer for with long, long history in that, called Plexit for a Brighter Future, The Case for Withdrawing from United Nations Climate Treaties. Now, President Trump announced back in June of 2017 that the U.S. would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. And that finally takes effect the day after our presidential election here mm -hmm. in November. Uh, we will be out of Paris at that point. Uh, if President Trump is reelected, we'll stay out. If, uh, if uh, Joe Biden is elected, he'll probably get us back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, but um, uh, the, the, the really bad thing is that the Paris Climate Agreement is actually just kind of a subset of a much bigger thing called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the U.S. is still a part of that. And as long as we are a part of that, we're going to keep getting sucked in by majority vote of member nations to things like the Paris Agreement. So Don Deers makes the case in this book, very clearly written, that we need to it, to exit the climate uh, agreement, the, the, the framework convention on climate change. And from now to the end of August, we will send a free copy of Plexit to anyone who makes a donation of any size. All they have to do is go to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. Click on donate and then make a donation of any size. Doesn't matter how large or how small and ask in the comments section for Plexit, and we'll be glad to send a free copy. That's quite lovely. I appreciate that. The climate, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, if it was fully instituted, would it not cost <laughs> somewhere in the $70 trillion range? Well, that would be the lower end. That's the lower uh, end. It would be, yeah, it would cost between $1 and $2 trillion per year from 2030 to 2100, Meanwhile, before then, it's still costing a couple hundred billion dollars a year to the world economy. So we could add that. But at any rate, even if we just count those 70 years, it would be 70 times one or two trillion dollars per year. So 70 to 140 trillion dollars. And the total impact 
on, uh, on climate change would be to prevent three-tenths of one degree Fahrenheit of global warming. That's 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree reduction in global warming. That's not a good deal, and to me, it's not surprising that the author of The Art of the Deal recognized that and got us out of it. Mm. Cal, I always learn so much every time you come on. I so appreciate you being a guest of the show, and I want to just let all our listeners know to head to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about Cal and his team and also to take advantage of his offer. So thank you, Cal. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have thank a, you, Bill. Have God a bless. great rest of the day. Dr. Cal Beisner, again, once again, has been my guest. Cornwallalliance.org is the website. All right, we're going to take a little break, but when we come back, we're just going to do some time in God's Word. We're going to just uh, meditate a little on the PPE, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. You'll have a little time to meditate and to speak God's Word out loud wherever you're at right now. Hopefully you've got space and time to do that. Take a short break, and we'll be back with just God's Word in a few minutes. weeks ago, we decided uh, just to spend a little time just reading Scripture. Rebecca and I did that, and Rebecca, I think, went really well. It was refreshing for me just to hear God's Word and be able to meditate on it together with you and with everyone in the listening family. Super cool. It was great, and we got a lot of nice comments from listeners that said, um, in particular, it's, I always love hearing God's Word, and one uh, listener said, boy, I've got uh, four young kids at home, and I didn't get my quiet time in this morning, so that really worked for me. I know what that's like. (laughs) (laughs) I am with you. So here's what I was thinking today. Maybe we can try praying a psalm out loud together. So what I would do uh, is I will just uh, start reading through Psalm 103, and after each phrase or verse, I will pause, and then you can speak it out loud as well. I think it's really important to speak God's Word out loud. Let's pray God's word together out loud. This is Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth? is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. 
he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant. And remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. And his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding. Who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works. Everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 34 I will bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. redeems the souls of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned
Let's continue now with Proverbs as we do our PPE, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. All right, now I'm going to read a proverb, but I'm not going to have you go back and forth with me. I'm just going to read it. This comes from Proverbs chapter 22. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. In the paths of the wicked are snares and pitfalls, but those who would persevere their life stay far from them. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, and the rod they wield in fury will be broken. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Drive out the mocker, and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. One who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he frustrates the words of the unfaithful. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. The mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit. A man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and one who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. Pay attention and turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have all of them ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I teach you today, even you. Have I not written 30 sayings for you, sayings of counsel and knowledge, teaching you to be honest and speak the truth, so that you bring back truthful reports to those you serve? Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. And last but not least, a passage from Ecclesiastes. Rebecca and I will do this together. We're starting in chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain 
from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Thank you so much for listening today, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. That wraps up our show for the night. I uh, look forward to our time tomorrow already. Have a great night, everyone. God bless, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.